All right, so I'm here with Brian Francis Culkin again, my friend. This will be our third conversation we've had. And perhaps this time we will cover maybe a little bit of things that we talked about in our first conversation, um, but that shouldn't be a, be a problem. We're going to delve deeper into two of your books, the first being The Meaning of Trump and the second being The Ayahuasca Dialogues. So... Um, you wrote, you wrote the meaning of Trump, was it three years ago? Yes, three years ago. So it was about a year into his presidency. Yes. I, I wrote it as soon as he got elected, I started to write it. Okay. And then it was published in 2017. Okay. Yeah. So, has anything changed? Have your, your opinions or thoughts changed in the time since then? No, uh, like my core ideas haven't changed in terms of how I see him and how I see, you know, the, the central part of the book is I identify five, what I call five discourses of Trump, like how he organized his political ecology. So those haven't changed at all. If, if anything, they've gotten stronger, but they've, of course, added new content to them. So there's more things he said and more things. And of course, with COVID, right, you have to analyze. I mean, Trump's presidency now is in, is in many ways defined by the COVID-19 crisis. Yeah. So I think that, um, but in in terms of what he ran on and what his... Um, his political ideology is, it really hasn't changed a whole lot other than the fact that it, it, has, it has absorbed new content into its structure. Did you see his election and his campaign? Did, when, when he first started, did you think, oh, this guy's going to win or, or oh, this guy's no. got a chance? Because most people were completely shocked. Yes. I mean, I don't think... I, what's interesting is that American politics has become so cynical and hopeless that when someone like Trump um, announced his presidency, my natural, was re my natural response was to say, there's no way a person like this could ever beat the establishment. There's no way a person like with this kind of uh, P.T. Barnum-like campaign could ever actually infiltrate the Washington establishment. Right. So... Um, I never thought for even... a a moment up until the night he was elected, he was going to win. I mean, I I never thought the day before, um, the, the day he won, he was going to win. I thought Hillary Clinton was going to win. I thought it was obvious, yeah. you know. And I I thought um, that it just was inconceivable that a person like Donald Trump, a property developer and a reality television star, could become the leader of the free world. So I mean, I was as shocked as anybody um, in two thousand in November of two thousand sixteen when he was actually elected. It was it was shocking, and I. I still remember watching that night, and when he won Florida, that was I was like, "What? Oh my God! Like this, this guy could win, <laughs> yeah. you know?" And then you start to see the, the like the faces of the pundits on CNN or MSNBC, and when they start to say it's serious or to or to uh, even um, engage with the potentiality that this could be real, that's when the audience begins to do it too. Yeah. So it, it was it was a shocking political event. There's no doubt about it. I, I was on. Um, my university campus when that happened and the day after there was just sort of like a it was almost like an uncle of everyone's had died or something just like this somber feeling amongst everyone and I, I think it, it's it was, it was almost like the the, the death of a, a collective narrative that we had all had mm -hmm. and it was all crumbling around us oh I mean there's no doubt about it that Trump's 
introduction into the American political landscape is a kind of death, right? There's a shattering of the Washington consensus. There's a shattering of a lot of the basic norms and, and civility that both Democrats and Republicans have, have upheld as, as um, cornerstones of you know, basic public decency. But one of the things that I talk about in the book and one of the things that I try to bring to the attention of the reader is that this bombastic, tweeting, um, obscene, really, approach that Donald Trump has to politics and to his public life is in many ways not simply a result of his own personal biography or his own personal personality, his own idiosyncrasies. This is a result of the policies and the technological system that has been put in place by both Democrats and Republicans alike. So I think that when you see, I mean, Donald Trump's presidency was, and the fact that he could be elected was entirely linked to his media personality. Sure. That had been established with the, with the Apprentice, that was furthered with his Twitter with his Twitter account. I think if you take those two things away, there's no there's no possible way that Donald Trump could have been elected. Yeah, he's, he's definitely a product of like screen culture. He's a product of screen culture, and that's you know maybe we can talk about that a little bit. But that's kind of how I introduce the book. Yeah. In the sense that I talk about the technology writer Kevin Kelly and his two concepts of the people of the book and the people of the screen. Right. And um, just to briefly summarize that, what Kelly says, who's the, one of the founders of uh, Wired magazine, which is probably the most important technology magazine in the world, and what Kelly said is that what we're dealing with right now in the present state of both American society and global society is kind of like an undeclared war between two groups of people. The first is what he calls the people of the book, and the second is what he calls the people of the screen. The people of the book tend to be older people, of course, but, but they tend to be people that still have a fidelity or still want a relationship to analog technologies, print media, kind of the Gutenberg universe, you could say. Um, people of the screen are the people who, are, who were either born into or have an active relationship with all of the new network technologies. So people of the book would say like they'd still read the, the – uh, the morning newspaper. They still want to work nine to five jobs. They still want to watch the nightly news. Whereas people of the screen want to be, you know, digital entrepreneurs. Um, they want to get their news from their Facebook feed. They want to consume media from multiple platforms. So there's a kind of this, this kind of existential, yes, generational, but it's more of a existential conflict that's happening between these two paradigms. Do you think there's a hard delineation? No, 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 there's definitely a lot of overlap. I mean, I would consider myself probably, even though I'm kind of critical of both in many ways, yeah. I would consider myself somebody who cannot help to be a person of the screen in some capacity. I don't think any of us can help to be a person of the screen today. Yeah. But I still have, I still like to read books. I would still prefer to watch the nightly news than to get my news off Facebook. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, so I, I, I think that, that uh, it's definitely not a hard delineation, but it's a conceptual tool and it's very helpful to see that the people of the book and the people of the screen aren't necessarily like a war of people against people. It's like how we have internalized, how each of us have internalized these two regimes into our own person. So like the war is within us, like Brian, Drew, like we are people of the screen and people, and we're fighting. And what's interesting about Trump is that he is, 
the person of the screen. Right. Like he is a he screen. Epitomizes he, he epitomizes screen culture. Yeah. He epitomizes reality television culture and digital social media culture with his Twitter feed. He has 90 million Twitter followers. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's an he's. I believe, I just saw this. He's, I think he's like, he's definitely top 10 in the world. But I think he's like six or so behind like Ariana Grande and Katy Perry. And I think Obama's above him too, actually. But um, yeah, I think Obama had something like three times as many Twitter followers when, when, when Trump was elected than did Trump, which I, I thought was interesting because you, th you think of Trump as being the, yeah. the Twitter guy. It might, might be different now that he's... Oh, I think it's different now for years, sure. But it's definitely different now. But, um, but yet, so, so Trump is the epitome of screen culture and the person on the screen. But yet, paradoxically, his entire political project and his, his really his, his, his ideological presentation was entirely geared to book people. Yeah. It was entirely geared to the people of the book. And the way he does that and the way I outlined it is through like five different um, programs, you could say, ideological programs economical economic programs uh, policy programs that he tries to initiate to appeal to the people of the book and, and this is I think the real paradoxical feature about Trump is that in a certain way he hates himself right. because his entire politics is generated towards this kind of passive-aggressive attack again not just passive-aggressive an outright attack against globalized screen culture. Right, the thing that gave his, his yes, rise. Yes, yes. Donald Trump was given a platform and he was given a rise by the deregulation of the economy in New York City real estate first and foremost, the deregulation of the media and the globalization of planet Earth through the integration of computational power and global capitalism. Those three things together gave a platform for a person like Donald Trump to become, I mean, it is a, an amazing fact that Donald Trump is the, is the leader of the free world. It's yeah. almost, I said uh, in one of my books, I, I tell, I, I kind of call on the, um, the film Back to the Future when Marty McFly, who's played by Michael J. Fox, he goes back in time and he meets Doc Brown and Doc says, okay, you're from the future, well, who's the president? And, and uh, Marty McFly, well, Ronald Reagan, and he says, the actor Ronald Reagan, you know, like they can't believe it. And, if, and just think about this. If somebody, if we went back in time to the year 2004, the year The Apprentice came out, and we met somebody and said, oh, you're from the year 2020, who's president? Donald Trump. Uh, no one would believe it, it. No one would believe it. It's the same thing. It would be inconceivable yeah. to believe. Yeah. But I think there is a link between someone like Ronald Reagan and someone like Donald Trump in the sense that, you know, Reagan was an actor. He was, from, he was a Hollywood actor. Um, Trump is a social media personality. So what it speaks to is the evolution of media culture in American society. And not only that, but it speaks to the, re the political relationship and how people, um, how voters identify with potential political actors. And, and first and foremost, there has to be a media presence. Right. There has to be, you know? Do you, do you think, it, would you say that people were duped by Donald Trump? Or, I mean, how, how do people rationalize the fact that he is the epitomization of the thing that they think they're fighting I against, mean, or they think he's fighting against? One of the weird things about Donald Trump, one of the straight, very strange things about Donald Trump, which also speaks to this breakdown of reality that we're all dealing with, is that in one sense, the man is clearly a pathological liar, but in another sense, I feel like Trump has maintained his promises more than any other president. <laughs> 
in my lifetime. Yeah. I'm going to build a wall. He, he does it. Yeah. I'm going to lower taxes. He does it. I'm going to you know, um, initiate all these harsh immigration reforms. He does it. I'm going you know, to get out of the Paris Accord. He does it. Right? So he, 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 in many ways, he does what he says. And that, of course, is really jarring to a political culture like Washington, D.C., where we have this whole string of politicians, both in the House and Senate and presidents, that say, I'm going to do something and never do it. Like a great example is Obama. When I get elected, I'm going to dismantle Guantanamo Bay. He didn't do that. Yeah. But he campaigned on that. Yeah. Right? So, that, I mean, that, that, that's or, a great or example. Or relationship to whistleblowers. I mean, and it's not just Obama. It's, yeah. I mean, you, you, could, you could highlight examples with Clinton, Bush, Bush too. Or politicians in general. Politicians in general in the contemporary cynical system that defines uh, Washington politics. There's, there's tremendous um, um, dissatisfaction with the voter because they see this kind of, you know, there's an old saying when a, when a politician, how do you know when a politician is lying? His lips are moving, right? right? <laughs> yeah. And I think... That is why so many people like Donald Trump and identify with Donald Trump because in, there, there is no doubt the man lies. I mean, I, there's just no doubt. I mean, yeah, the guy lies, lies. He outright lies. But at the same time, in certain instances, not only does he keep his word, but he radically, he radically keeps his word. He sticks to it. He, 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 he sees it and he lets people know that he did it. And I think, and I think too, one of the other reasons why people identify with him, and this is one of the problems that I had with the liberal critique of Trump, is that the personal attacks and the vicious nature and really the over-the-top anti-Trump rhetoric was so ridiculous yeah. and really pathetic that so many people saw this man really being like digitally sacrificed every day. And they identified with that because they saw themselves and, you know, in his position, and they um, they came to his defense. So a lot of people, I think, I don't know if I'd say feel bad, but they identify with his public flagellation, you could say. Yeah. And and they have come to and they've mobilized around him to his defense. He has a really interesting relationship with the media because he he calls out fake news CNN, and sure, sure, sure. fake news this, yeah. and, and they they attack him brutally, and, and they also lie about him all the time, but. It seemed like these establishment media networks were were falling, were on the decline before Trump. And once Trump got into office, that that gave them so much firepower to really revitalize their networks and their their popularity. So I think it's like there's a weird connection. Oh, there. definitely. I think that's true. I think that mainstream media outlets and even cable outlets like CNN or MSNBC they were all under great stress from the new media ecology, which is, which is um, social media, blogging, and just like the decentered nature of yeah, network technologies. Yes, they, they were in trouble, and Trump did help to revitalize them. But in, in the other sense, these people helped to get Trump elected. Right. I mean, when you look at 2016, this constant wall-to-wall, really what it was was like fascination with Trump and the way he approached politics and the way he addressed the public. Um, this gave Trump unprecedented media coverage that other politicians didn't have. I mean, there were a lot of Republican candidates in 2016. I think there were like 16 candidates. Yeah. And he, by far and away, received the most coverage from sites like CNN that uh, eventually completely turned on him. Right. But I think what's interesting is that 
since Trump has lost the election, he's received very little coverage, and he's been having daily uh, Twitter outbursts, and daily, you know, he's been giving these speeches that, in another time, in another place, would have been covered from the Oval Office on, MS, on MSNBC, excuse me, on NBC, CBS, and ABC simultaneously at 8 p.m. sharp, right. where now he's uh, relegated to posting these speeches on his Twitter feed. Right. Um, what do you think the future is for these media companies now that it at least seems like Trump is on his way out and Joe Biden is on the, on the way in? Because well, they, it gives them much less firepower with Joe Biden than it did with Trump. I, I think the dismantling of the media... See, it's, it's interesting because in one sense, the media is becoming decentralized, in one sense, at least on the surface of things. But in another sense, it's becoming radically con consolidated through Facebook, through Google, through these mega technological corporations. So again, it's, it's really hard to see how that's going to play out in terms of, you know, will M NBC potentially merge with Facebook? I mean, so there's a lot of things that could potentially happen. So I do think that in one sense, we're seeing a radical decentralization, a radical decomposition of traditional media outlets and traditional media narratives. But in another sense, I think we're seeing an unbelievable co consolidation of technological and media power at the precise same time. How that will play out, it'll be very difficult. It'll, it's certainly, I, I can't say how that'll happen. But, um, you know, fake news, and just to speak about that for one second, and fake news is definitely something that originated from the right and with Donald Trump because the news media ecology is a liberal phenomena, right? So, yeah. it, it, But it's, it's also, I mean, pundits on the left and people on the left, and even, I mean, they call the right fake news too. So fake news is a, an, an, a ubiquitous term that is used by both the left and the right to describe each other. But really, I think fake news is an interesting concept because what it really talks about is not necessarily journalists lying. I mean, right. that's ridiculous. What it really talks about is that in our contemporary environment of this, re this unbelievable technological and media saturation, we're seeing a breakdown between social reality and media representation. So if you would go back to, let's say, the 1960s where someone like Walter Cronkite was at CBS and he was giving the news every night, you know, the most trusted man in America, what Cronkite did was he created a discourse in which his words essentially matched what happened in the world. Now, it, it can never be an exact match, right? I mean, this is one of the lessons of, of, of linguistics and deconstruction. It can never be an exact match, but it was there to the point where people could deal with it. What's happening now is that social reality, you know, our day-to-day -day experience of life and the way it's represented in the media is that link has been severed. It's been ruptured. And it doesn't really matter if you're on MSNBC or Breitbart, if you're in CBS or Infowars, that rupture is there. Right. So fake news is an interesting concept. I don't necessarily think it's helpful to weaponize it the way Trump has, to totally discredit the media. But at the same time, I do think it's important for people to realize that fake news is not a left-wing or right-wing thing. It's, yeah. a, it's a structural problem relating to social reality and its representation and how the overdetermination of technology is making that representation almost impossible. Yeah. So that's really what it is. It's almost like we have... And, 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 and that's, let me just say one thing, that's one of the great disservices of, of the mainstream media today, the fact that they have not done any 
reporting or had any journalistic in, any journalistic integrity around this issue because it's a very very serious issue. When you live in a country that that cannot trust its media, yeah, you are on the verge of a systemic social collapse right. or, um, or violence in the streets or some kind of revolution. When you don't have that, you have a serious problem because that and many. I mean, you know, when you think of um, like a novel like 1984, I mean. You know, the way the, the media environment today is very different from the Orwellian um, concept of the future. Very, very different. But at the same time, Big Brother is a disseminator of fake news. That's really what he is. There's a, you know, he's talking about a war in Oceania, but there really isn't a war in Oceania, right? It's, it's a, there's a breakdown between media representation and what's actually happening on the ground. Yeah. And today, you know, the, the scene of 1984 is this kind of dark and dreary totalitarian state where today it's this kind of um, this happy it's, – it's like, like, like the media is the opposite of that. It, even though it acts like that behind the scenes, when we go on Facebook, we don't feel like we're in 1984 at all. Right. We, we feel like we have this false sense of freedom that we can go to different sites and get information where we want and we have this uh, informational access. But – Fake news is fake news, yeah. and fake news again. It's a it's a breakdown between sign and meeting. It's, it seems like social media is is able to. Um, it's it's creating two divergent realities or two two divergent narrative systems, in which, depending on what you look up or what you read, it, you're going to have a feedback system on your social media or your Facebook feed as to what it shows you. And it seems like, like right now, we have one one reality in which Donald Trump won the presidency, and one reality in which Joe Biden won the presidency. And I'm concerned about something that approaches a civil war or armed armed conflict because of these two divergent realities that we have right now. Sure. Well, there's never going to be a civil war, a la the American Civil War in today's political yeah. and media environment, because the civil war that took place between 1861 and 1865, this was based on a series of clear-cut differences. Gray you physically? Or? Well, yeah, I mean, gray uniforms in the south, right. blue uniforms in the north. Yeah. There was a geographical divide that separated the north and the south. Right. Whereas yeah. today, the the problem is precisely the fact that there are no differences. The differences are imploding. So you could be living in Boston or living in Vermont or living in Alabama, and your next-door neighbor is a – like you're a Biden person, your next neighbor is a Trump person, yeah. right? Um, so there's no way to have that kind of defined conflict. The only way we can really have it is to narrate it from a media perspective, right? So like the conflict's taking place – more so in the media. Now, this isn't yeah. to say that there, there couldn't be potential violence in the streets, but it's never going to be like an actual civil war in the way that we think about the American Civil War. Um, in, when, when Jean Baudrillard, who's a favorite philosopher of mine, when he was hired to be a journalist to cover the Gulf War in the early 90s, what he did was just watch CNN and said, like, the, the war is happening on CNN. And I think that's a, a, a similar... I mean, he, and he was one of the first people to see the direction of the global media apparatus. I mean, right. he's, he's, a, he's one of the primary theorists of, um, of, 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 uh, 
of, of the media and his concepts of simulation and hyperreality. But I think it's a similar thing today. If you want to see the civil war in America, just turn on CNN. Yeah. You know, watch watch it the night news. It seems to be in the digital space. It's, it's much more in digital space now. Th again, it's not to say that this couldn't potentially become act actually violent. Um, and it was, in, in, I mean, this summer with the protests that yeah. followed from the from the murder of George Floyd. There, there was violence in the streets. Now, yeah, increasing that violence. could definitely get worse and that could definitely happen, but the battles won't be like Antietam or, um, or, or Bull Run where you have one people, when you have one group on one side, one on the other. It'll be right. sporadic and random and it'll be more like guerrilla warfare, if anything. Sure. You know? it, it seems like it could almost be a, a difference of urban centers and rural because you have a, a difference there. More rural people are Trump people. Oh, definitely. More, more city people. Definitely. But at the same time, you know, like here's an easy example in Georgia, Athens, Georgia, where University of Georgia, I mean, that's a notoriously liberal place, right? But it's in the middle of the South. Right. It's in the middle of a rural area. So, I, I mean, I think even if you try to um, separate it urban to rural, that itself is spread out across the country. So it, it still has this kind of... Uh, um, it's still not a, a, a coherent way to see it, you know? What do you think has happened with journalism? It seems like there's been a, a breakdown where journalists do very little investigative research and it's more just opinion. I, any, when you go on Facebook and you click on news articles, in quotations, a lot of times it's, it's simply opinion without it being sourced from any actual person or resource. That could probably speak to a couple of things, but I think the, the real thing it speaks to is the lack of attention that people have. I think that people that work in the media um, are being bombarded all day with information um, that they don't necessarily have the time to sit down and do some real research. Um, and I think that can affect the quality of their work and the investigative capacity of their work. And um, I do still think there is journalism happening definitely you know do you think it's um, just harder to find i think I, th I think it's definitely harder to find and i definitely think because the nature the very nature of social media is opinion right that real investigative reporting tends to be drowned out by and and also too investigative reporting isn't necessarily click worthy it's not necessarily like worthy because yeah. when you have to read a piece of real investigative journalism what you have to do is you have to sit down and concentrate. Right. You have to stop what you're doing and give the text your attention. And that's that, difficult for a lot of people. That's today. difficult for a lot of people today. Yeah. So it's much easier to read a, a, a hyperbolic tweet than it is to read a 5,000 word um, investigative journalist piece. Yeah, wow. That's terrifying. But again, these things are all related, right? Yeah, these yeah. things are all related. Fake news. The incapacity to generate real investigative journalism, the incapacity to um, perceive the media as having real journalistic integrity. These things are all related. Yeah. These things are all related. And I think that at some point there is going to be a breakdown in how this is politically dealt with. Um, so uh, a, a breakdown, what do you mean by Do you mean some sort of looming... Looming crisis because yes. you can talk about that a little bit. Yes, yes. It, it it does seem like just from my perspective well, that I mean, we're inching towards towards some some sort of tipping point or breaking point. Well, what do you think that is? Well, of course that's obvious. I mean, we and we all and we don't necessarily have to put that into words because it's a feeling. 
we all feel that. Yeah. This is not yeah, something. There's an anxiety that. There's that an there, there's an existential intuition that something is coming. Yeah. Right. Some kind of breakdown, collapse. I don't really know what it what it is, but but there's a feeling, and I, I and and I think that in many ways, trying to even put it into words. Um, is is a futile effort because we don't because we don't really know what's going to happen. We can try, but I was when you read the last words of the Trump book that I wrote in 2016, and you see where we are with COVID. I actually read that before I came here. I actually glanced over the book and I I actually read the epilogue because um, I hadn't read it in a, in a few years now. And I read the last. You know, I've written a lot of books, so I kind of forget sometimes what exactly what the what I wrote and everything yeah, like yeah, that. You know what I mean? And I read it like, and I'm like, wow, Brian, that was pretty good. Like like you really predicted you know, kind of where we are right now. And the last words of the Trump novel, excuse me, the last words of the Trump uh, book are something to the effect like we're heading towards calamity. We're heading towards disaster. Yeah. And when you look at the situation right now with COVID-19, um, that sense is only getting stronger. Yeah. That sense is only getting stronger. Um, and, you know, to Trump's credit, one of the things that I do like about Trump, not that I agree with him, but what I like about him is that America has been almost on a managed decline for the past 25 years. And what I like about Trump is that he had the fortitude and the strength and the maybe even the craziness to say, you know something, not going to happen. We're going to build America. We're going to make America great again. We are going to um, revitalize the industrial sector. We're going to start making things. We're going to take care of our board. You know what I mean? Like we're going to revitalize American consciousness. We're going to do, I mean, I find it fascinating that that that's perceived by so many people as being racist or xenophobic. Well, I think, I think that, I, I think that some of his rhetoric can be interpreted as being xenophobic for yeah, sure. Definitely. But I, at the same time, I do think that, you know, this idea that, I mean, the, the way that, liberal pundits and the left-wing media ecology would describe Trump's racism is so ridiculous. It's so not detached from what he, you know, I mean, Trump would always talk about how he was so proud of the fact that the African-American employment uh, figures were at their lowest ever, that the Hispanic, yeah. I mean, this is not something that, a, that an avowed racist would talk about, right? right? Exactly. An, an avowed racist would want to make black people live in misery, would want to make Hispanic people live in misery. Yeah. Um, again, Again, I am not a fan at all of Trump's economic policies. I found, I found them very problematic. And even though they had short-term gains, they're only going to lead to more misery in the future because he essentially gave a free check to corporations and, 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 um, and, 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 and uh, Wall Street. So um, I think that there are definitely major problems with Trump's economic ideology. But at the same time, um, his him being called like a Nazi and stuff like that. I mean, it's kind of ridiculous. And I think that, um, yeah, so that's what I'd say about the, that. There's this, this strange strain of thought that exists. I mean, in, his in daughter it. was Jewish. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like his daughter is Jewish. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. But, but the, this exists other than Trump, outside of Trump, this idea that any form of nationalism, any form of national pride or a, a yearning to better 
your own country sure. is is xenophobic or racist. and that's and that's like you know for instance in Peru if you were to say you know Viva Peru that wouldn't be considered racist at all that's yeah. very, that's very normal in Peru to be proud of your country and I think that's true throughout Latin America I also think it's true certainly in a place like China I think it's it's um, where you find it problematic is in Western European countries like England maybe France and certainly in America where it's at its that kind of ideology is at its most extreme. Um, my feeling about that is interesting. I mean, I would prefer nationalism over capitalist globalization, definitely. I, I think that the way America has been going for the past, the way the world has been going for the past 20 years and the absolute, and the absolute eroding of all national borders and national cultures for this kind of one global technocratic culture is definitely not healthy. Yeah. So I can see how Trump would um, I can see how Trump's idea to repolarize national consciousness to instill a sense of pride in being American could be very um, um, hopeful and, and uh, well received by a, a big segment of the American population. But at the same time, I do think that nationalism is a flash in the pan in the story of the human race. I mean, nationalism is a very new phenomenon. I mean, this didn't this this is a a, a 17th century phenomena. So I do think that we have to think about different ways of political representation and cultural representation that are more innovative and uh, really spiritual, I think. Um, so I think that globalization as a process, capitalist globalization, I should say, is dangerous and destructive. And I would definitely prefer a system of nationalism in lieu of that. But at the same time, I would personally prefer another system in lieu of both of those systems, you know, a kind of new revitalization of, you know, living on planet Earth. I mean, you know, we live in a big universe, man. You know, planet Earth yeah. is a small little planet. And I, I think at some point we're going to have to take uh, account of our, not just our ter terrestrial relationship, but of our cosmic relationship and where we sit in the solar system and the universe. And, and uh, well, it's, it's, it's really what we're dealing with now is a, we have to change our consciousness. We have to change how we relate to each other, how we relate to ourselves, how we relate to the world, and how we relate to the heavens. So perhaps a change in identity. Yes, yes. And I think that this is what globalization has done over the past 20 years in how it has reprogrammed us to not think of ourselves as Americans, but as global citizens. But unfortunately, this global citizenship isn't like real global citizenship. It's really global consumerism, yeah. right? So it's, it's, it's not the way that I would conceive of global citizenship. Yeah, it's, it's almost an extraction of the working class on a global scale to the betterment of some sort of elite class. Well, that and a number of other things as well. Yes, definitely. Can you tell me a little bit about um, Trump's rhetoric? Something like drain the swamp. I, I, I find it really fascinating how he uses these often short phrases, but, but they, they really hit with a well With a wealth of meaning. Yes, with a wealth of meaning, exactly. With a wealth of meaning. I think, I mean, in many ways, I think Trump's a genius, personally. I personally think he's a genius. That, that was what I was going to ask. I, was gonna ask Def, I mean, definitely. I because mean, from one perspective, he's a, a babbling moron who, if I, you look at a transcript... But I also course, think he's a babbling moron, too. <laughs> you know? Absolutely. I think he's a babbling moron as well. I think he's a con man as well. I also think he's a genius. So, I mean, there's, and I think a lot of people can't hold those two things at the same time. Right. Where for me, it's no problem. He's a babbling idiot. He is a genius.
Yeah. There's no doubt about it. And I think what's interesting about Trump's genius, it doesn't come from his uh, brain, so to speak, because he is a babbling idiot, you know? It comes from, I don't think it comes from his heart either, it comes from his gut. I think he has unbelievable intuition. I think he has unbelievable street sense. And I think that he has used that. that that's a funny uh, term for him. Because he, he, is he is unbelievable street sense. Unbelievable. He can, he can see things and know things just like that. Yeah. He's like a street guy in, 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 a, in a certain sense that's not from the streets. Cause he's yeah, from very, exactly. He's, he's from Queens, say. but he's from a, you know, somewhat of a, of, a, of a wealthy family in Queens. But he's a street guy, and he has great street sense, and he reads situations very well. And the other thing about Trump that I really like is that he trusts himself. He trusts his intuition. And he doesn't really care if people don't. I mean, th so there's something about that that is admirable. Again, I don't think he puts it necessarily to admirable ends, yeah. but there's something about that that is admirable that I personally admire. I wish I could have that kind of self-confidence. I mean, yeah. I'm always second-guessing myself. This guy says, I see it, I do it, boom. Right. And there's something about that I like. You know, you, you see that in a lot with great athletes, like someone like Michael Jordan. Great, great sense, a great sense of things. We, in basketball, we call it court sense. You get in the court and you just know certain things are a certain way. It, they make it look easy. When, it, when make, someone that's watching, it, it looks easy. Well, I don't know if Trump makes it look – that's what a, a great basketball player does. Or, yeah, or, right. Or, or, or a great or, football player or exactly. whatever. I don't necessarily think Trump makes it look easy, <laughs> but I think that he has is, he is great street sense and um, a tremendous um, uh, confidence in his own intuition. Now, what I – in terms of your question about training the – Take me through your five points about uh, Trump's political program. Well, so the first, um, what I call the discourses of Trump, the first one would be his outright uh, um, rejection of illegal immigration. And I think that's a, an important point because when he announced his candidacy in the summer of 2015, and he walked the famous event of him walking down the steps at the uh, the Trump Plaza in New York City. He made that almost the centerpiece of what he would be doing to right. um, revitalize America. So that would be number one, a, a rejection of illegal immigration. The second would be a a rebuilding of the American industrial economy. Trump was ran his politics on an anti-globalization platform. And part of globalization over the past you know, 30 years or so, 40 years really, has been a, an outsourcing of the American industrial base and a shift of the American economy from productive forces to information, virtual forces, and, um, and, um, and I guess you could say digital content. But it's, it's, it's really a movement from the real world to virtual space, as well as the service sector. So essentially, Trump wanted to bring back factories. Exactly. And, 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 this, and this has been told by our political class as being an impossible feature. Yeah. It's gone. It's in Mexico. It's in Guatemala. It's in Vietnam. It's in Singapore. It's in China. It's gone. And Trump's project was to rebuild the industrial apparatus. And of course, that appealed to a huge base of voters in the Rust Belt, in the South, and, and, and even in a place like New England, which was, you know, the New England textile industry was the first industry to lose its industrial base. When you look at these towns like Lowell, Massachusetts, Lawrence, Massachusetts, Bitterford, Maine, Manchester, New Hampshire, these are old kind of 
old industrial towns that had been outsourced long before a city like Detroit or a city like Pittsburgh. So that was point two. Uh, point three was what I call a revitalization or a repolarization of American consciousness. And this is encapsulated in phrases like MAGA or um, make, America, excuse me, make America Great Again or America First. And what that is, which of course goes along with point one and point two, is just this idea that America is a country that has borders, that has a past which we should be proud of, which has a future that we should look forward to. America is a political entity. And of course, globalization is based on the idea of eroding all political boundaries for a single world market and a single technological system. And I think someone like, you know, Trump in many ways responded to the politics of Barack Obama and the neoliberal consensus. You know, I don't necessarily think, I think Obama, just as in a way I think Trump was not necessarily treated fairly by the left-wing media, I certainly don't think someone like Obama was treated fairly by the right-wing media. I mean, yeah. Obama was, was all, kinds of anti, all kinds of inflammatory terms during his presidency. And one of the things that he was always called was being this kind of anti-American, you know, it got a lot worse than that. But I don't necessarily think Obama was anti-American. What I think Obama was is that he put a, a precedence, not so much in America the country, but as America being a part of a bigger globalized picture, right? And I think that is what Trump politically responded to, of saying, no, 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 no. America is not just one country among many. America is the greatest of all countries. And I also think, you know, to be fair to Trump, he also wanted other countries to assert their national identity as well. So right. it, it wasn't just, tr for Trump, it wasn't just like America is America. It was also, you know, India is India. He had a great relationship with someone like uh, Modi. So I, I think that um, that's point three, this repolarization of the idea of national consciousness. And again, not just pertaining to America, but pertaining to the world at large. Um, the fourth thing was his rejection and his attack of what we call identity politics, yeah. right? So part of, again, the Barack Obama project of the neoliberal consensus, yes, globalization, but also this reduction of social and political life to personal identity. Right. And I think Trump had a real problem with that, as does the right in general. Um, and there was a, an attack of that. And of course, the, what, what goes along with identity politics is the discourse of what we call politically correct or now woke language, right? Which is this kind of tiptoeing around certain gender, or sexual, or um, or um, or race features that define people's uh, identity in the, in the in the 21st century. What do you think about that? Do you think that that is a regression into really? Uh, a less sophisticated way of identifying oneself, primarily viewing well, yourself I, through I gender do, or Oh, definitely. I mean, I, I definitely do, but at the same time, we have to understand that, for instance, black people in America have been brutalized and, and have lived in a racist society for the past 400 years. So you cannot, you cannot ever blame a, a black person for asserting their identity right. in a racist culture like America. But at the same time, identity is ultimately a dead end. Right. And I think the purpose of any spiritual discipline is to burst through identity and to have some kind of universal sub subjectivity, you could say. So I, I, I think identity is very limited in terms of what it can do to define a person. 
because we're ultimately more than our identity. We're like, you know, I could say, especially you, more than just our fixed characteristics. Yeah, that we have no choice. But but at the same time, it's a lot easier for me as a straight white man in America to say that right. than it is for a black person to say that. Sure. So, so even though for me, I'm ultimately critical of political correct discourse and woke politics. At the same time, I completely understand how it could be very appealing to certain segments of the population and why they would identify with that kind of um, linguistic representation and that kind of narrative discourse. But at the same time, Trump didn't like that, right? So yeah. we're, we're talking about his five, the five points of his discourse. And the fifth point was what we already talked about, which is the, the attack of the attack in the, the mainstream media and the introduction of concepts like fake news to dismantle and degrade traditional media narratives. Um, but again, we talked about that, and it's fake news, even though it came from the right and it came from Trump, this is a structural phenomena that bears witness to the relationship between, rep between representation, how social reality is being represented in networked media technologies, and how that's a, that's a serious, serious problem for the world right now. Yeah. So th those are the five points. Rejection of elite... Of, a rejection of illegal immigration, a reintroduction of the industrial economy, um, a resurgence of national consciousness, the rejection of identity politics, and the attack of the mainstream media using inflammatory language like fake news. Those would be his five main points. Right. And it's, it's interesting how the response from the resistance to Trump often end, ends in, like we, we talked about earlier, often ends in very simplistic and often unfair accusations of racism, xenophobia. Sure, sure. Well, the resistance to Trump, the, what I would call the neoliberal resistance to Trump, the reason why they have to um, descend into these personal attacks and you know, calling Trump a Nazi um, when his own daughter is Jewish is because they created Trump. They laid the groundwork in terms of their previous policies and their previous um, political actions for a, for a person like Donald Trump to emerge as president. So they really can't critique Trump in an honest way right. because they laid the structural groundwork where he could emerge as, as the president. So, and, so Trump isn't really an, an intrusion, but is... a. Uh... Well, he's, he's an intrusion, but he's, but he's also a phenomenon of a process. He's, he's both, I think. I, I think there's definitely something about Trump that is unaccounted for, because he has this wild personality that you just never know what this guy's going to do. Right. But at the same time, someone like Trump is a logical consequence of introducing smartphones and Twitter feeds to the American population. Yeah. And smartphones and Twitter feeds were applauded by the progressive neoliberal left of San Francisco in 2010. And two, you know what I mean? Like this is like, this was their technology, right? Yeah. But their technology spawned a reactionary right-wing politician in the form of Trump. And they don't really like to talk about that. And the second thing is that the resist, when you think of resistance in, I guess, historical political context, you think of wanting to change something, right? right. Whereas the resistance of Trump is not to change something, it's to go back to quote-unquote normal. It's to go back to the old way. Right. So there's something inherently hi hypocritical about that. And the resistance isn't a resistance. It's like, in a weird way, it's reactionary. It's going back to a system that produced 
what you're resisting against. I mean, think about that. For I mean, talk about illogical, yeah. right? And this is why I think that if someone like Biden comes in and continues on in the direction that the continues on in the direction of American society, you are going to see a either Trump again in 24 in 2024 using much more violent and aggressive rhetoric or potentially even a worse kind of politician that sure. is even more reactionary and speaks more from the right. So I think that um, the resistance of Trump against Trump was always problematic because it was always based around um, a, a return to the very system that gave Trump his own conditions of possibility. Yeah. Yeah, that makes that totally makes sense. Can you speak to the uh, the American system more generally? In that, it seems like when you have an administration or a Congress that implements change, often the next administration spends a lot of their time and energy undoing the changes that were made by the previous administration. Do you think that that's a good thing? In that, you can't have radical change over a short period of time. I mean, I. I, t- you know, I was an American history major in college, right? So I tend to have a lot of admiration for the American system, even though it's broken right now and even though it's corrupted and even though it doesn't necessarily work to the benefit of all people. I think that from a conceptual standpoint, you know, people like Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton were, were geniuses in terms of how they separated the, the, the branches of government, how they yeah. delineated power, how they set up. The, I mean... It's this is another thing. System. It's a very elegant system. And even something like the, the Electoral College, I mean, to me, the Electoral College is like one of the most unbelievable schemas of authentic democracy. Yeah. I mean, you saw in 2016 with so many puns from the left were saying, the Electoral College is inherently racist, it's inherently wrong. So what do you want to go to, like a mob vote of like whoever gets the most votes win? I mean, that, that would totally disenfranchise a... like. Where you where you're from, Montana, it would mean nothing all politically. All of Middle America. The hall of Middle would, be, would mean nothing. So California, New York would decide every election. Would decide every in, in Texas too, probably in Florida. But yeah. you'd have these like major metropolitan areas. I mean, that's inherently anti-democratic, yeah, exactly. and that's something that Thomas Jefferson was inherently afraid of. Now, it is true that there were features of the Electoral College that were that were racist in the sense that black slaves were only accounted as three-fifths of persons. I mean, of course, that is racist, but that's just content of the Electoral College. That, that has nothing to do with the overall idea of what the Electoral College is. So I want to say that, that there is something about the American system of government that is um, a breakthrough in the history of the human race. Now, today, the situation has, of course, become completely corrupt, and it has become overdetermined by both technology and capitalism. And of course, when I say capitalism, I mean lobbyists and corporations and all the people that have infiltrated the, the quote St. Paul, the powers and principalities that have infiltrated the American system. So I think, yes, the, I mean, obviously the American system is, all you have to do is turn on the news. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying anything that you don't know. Turn on the news and you can see that the crisis of American politics that has gotten exponentially worse over the 21st century, beginning with 9-11, becoming even worse with the crisis in 2008 and, you know, Bush's wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and then culminating with the Trump presidency and the COVID-19 crisis. There's there's a real political crisis in America, and I don't think anyone has an answer to it. I don't think Trump has an answer, and I don't think either AOC has an answer, even though I I think someone like AOC and the quote-unquote woke wing of of the Democratic Party does have something to say. 
And I, and I do appreciate certain things that AOC says about the conditions of working people in America. Yeah. I mean, one of, the, you know, one of the things that's so interesting to me is that when Trump talks about making America great again, what I always think of immediately is like the 1950s. I think of like right. Eisenhower's America. But at the same time, in Eisenhower's America, it was, a, it was a lot more, there was a lot more equality back then. And the left doesn't realize that. The left thinks of uh, the 1950s as this like inherently horrific place. But there was a lot of, like, again, it's not to say the 1950s were perfect, but there was a lot of things about the 1950s that we could take and use for what follows in the future. So there's this historical illiteracy that you find on both the left and the right, and there's also the incapacity, like AOC, which I, which I, which, when, when she first came on the stage, I really admired her in many ways. But now I'm, you know, I still think she has some really important things to say, but what I don't like about her is that, she focuses so much of her critique on just Republicans in like a blanket way. And when she does critique her own party, she doesn't do it. In like, it's kind of like for a Twitter soundbite. It's, it's right. not in a real way. Yeah. And she doesn't really um, show people these real inconsistencies that are really inscribed. You know, to be a good politician, you have to be self-critical too. Sure. You can't just be critical of other people. You have to be rigorously self-critical. And I don't think AOC is. She's not critical enough of her own ideas, you know. And I think to be a good politician, um, that somebody can really because what we need right now is we need like a real political figure to come in and kind of help the situation. You, I mean, you, you know, I think of someone like Gandhi. This guy used to do fast for a week at a time. Yeah. You know, I mean, this guy was unbelievably self-critical, and of course he had his problems too. He wasn't a perfect man. Like, yeah, but, of course. But but um, but I think. You know, one of my favorite politicians in the history of, of, of America is Bobby Kennedy. I mean, he's, I mean, he's an amazing human being, and he was very self-critical. And, he, and because of his own capacity for self-criticism, he was able to have an honest assessment of society. He was able to have an honest uh, critique of American political economy. And I think that is something that we desperately need today. I think because the ecology of social media makes us all so narcissistic and makes us all want to be brands versus human beings that our capacity for self our capacity for self-criticism has been incrementally lowered by this new media horizon and that's very sad to me very very sad because you know what we respond to in people is not just their in their chemistry but also their humility you know i i think what's a, a real great combination is this com is, is a combination of charisma and humility yeah. this combination of power and decency right. and i think when you get those and that's something that trump completely lacks complete, humility. Com completely lacks yeah. and he also lacks decency too yeah, absolutely. you know so but i i think too you could say you could say the same thing for people on the left too you sure. know and, and and i think for someone like sanders what he lacked was charisma yeah you know he, yeah. he had a little bit of charisma but it was kind of eh. you know it wasn't like bobby kennedy charisma and trump has charisma it's a weird charisma it's a bizarre <laughs> charisma yeah. but, but he does have it um, it's either people love him or people hate him. There's not totally, really any, any totally. between with him. And from what I understand, too, about Sanders, he's, he's kind of a curmudgeon. He's not like the nicest guy in the world. Yeah. So I think we need uh, people who are authentically good people, who have an authentic spiritual dimension to their lives to come into. Um, but at the same time, I mean, I tend to think that the world is falling apart, and I tend to be positive about that. Not in the sense that I want to see human suffering, human misery, but I 
like the system that we're living in, I mean, it's rotten. It, it has to go. And if you keep handing over more power to Amazon and Google and certain political and corporate players, the situation's only going to get worse. It can't get better in a system like that. So I tend to think that the world is going to bits. Let's, let's have a party and let's see what's going to happen. That's, that tends to be my political ideology today. So perhaps that's a good segue to say that in going forward in the future, we need to return to Mother Nature as our teacher and as a guide. Well, I tend to be I tend to be more Christian in my outlook in the sense that we have to have a spiritual relationship, not necessarily a material relationship to the to the. But at the same time, but that's the spiritual relationship can be mediated by definitely a physical de- relationship de- with your definitely definitely. So I I do think that we have to have a a kind of like you know my feeling on a healthy natural relationship would be like contained in the text of the Sermon on the Mount, right? Where, t- where Christ talks about the lilies of the field and the sparrows of the air. Where we have to respect nature in a much more radical way than we do right now. But I don't think that we should return to paganism either. You know what I mean? And that's yeah. a, and, that, and that's a fine line. Sure. Like I'm 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 definitely not a, a neo pagan in the sense that we have to have this new relationship with Mother Earth. No, 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 no. But I do think that we have to be aware that on our time here, we have to have a very, that the Earth is a living organism. It is alive. It has a, an elementary consciousness. And we have to treat it in a much better way. And we also have to create political and, eco, and economic systems and social systems that are, much, that are in, in much more of a harmonious, um, have, have a much more harmonious nature than these really disastrous systems that we have right now. And I think the only way you can really do that is by realizing that human consciousness is superior to, you know, earth consciousness, I guess, just just to say it like that. Now, that that sounds narcissistic to a point, but at the same time, if you return to paganism, I don't think you can have that kind of healthy relationship because you see yourself... I mean, human. We have to realize that we have a special place here on, on the world. Yeah. You know, I mean, stewards. we are stewards, and if we return to this kind of ridiculous paganism, we're not able to take the responsibility that we have to take. Right. So that's what I would say. Okay. Yeah. All right. I think that's a perfect place to stop then. All right. All right. Thanks. Yep.